Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 32 through 40. And I think on Father's Day, it's interesting to think about how as a dad, I want to be a hero to my kids. And I think as fathers in general, I think as people in general, we want to be a hero to our own kids, but, but especially as dads. We want to be our kids' hero. We want them to see us as strong, as wise, as, as uh, humble. <laughs> we want them to see us as heroes in their lives, somebody that they look up to. I think our world is filled with a lot of heroes. There's a lot of superhero stories. I, I enjoy some of the movies. I never really got into comics as a kid, but I, I enjoy a good superhero story. And I think if you asked your kids if they knew who Superman was or Spider-Man or or Wonder Woman, they would be familiar with these superheroes. What we're going to look at here, and in many ways what we've been looking at over the past couple weeks in Hebrews chapter 11, is a list of superheroes that Jewish kids would have grown up learning about. But they weren't fictional superheroes. They were superheroes right out of the Old Testament. People of faith that followed God, especially and even through very difficult times. And God blessed them and worked through their lives. And so they would have grown up hearing stories of Gideon and Samson and David and Samuel and some others that we'll look at. And they would have been challenged by the things these people went through, good and bad. And more importantly, or most importantly, by the God that they trusted in. And so as we finish up this Hall of Faith chapter, I want us to think about how these people are heroes, how we are to be heroes like them, and what exactly does that look like in our life, In our life, and what does that lead to? And the answer to that last question is a very difficult one. Now, context is important here. As we jump into a Hall of Faith chapter, we can understand, and I hopefully, hopefully you see, that, that these people are being held up as great examples of faith. But the rest of the book is all about Jesus Christ, how he is greater than anything else that we might look for, seek after, run to in our lives for comfort and ultimately for salvation. And so this chapter is put there not to ignore all that, but to enhance it and say, look how Jesus is the greatest thing ever. He is God's means of salvation. And look at how these people in the past trusted in the Lord who would bring salvation. So we don't want to leave behind the context of the book as we move on through the book. Now first I want to talk about triumph. We're going to look at some examples here in verses 32 through the beginning of verse 35 of some people that trusted in the Lord and some miraculous stories that came out of these. So let me read this for us, starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. These are stories of triumph. Great triumph. And they're held up as examples to us. You too can trust in a God who brings about this kind of triumph. As miraculous as it is, we have a triumphant God who loves to bring victory to those 
who are faithful. And I love the way the author starts. What more shall I say? He's already said a lot. He's told us about Abraham. He's told us about Moses. He's told us about several others in sort of their stories or around that time period in the Old Testament. And now he's saying, there's so many others I could look at, but we don't really have time. And then he goes on just to list them because, again, they would have been familiar to them. It's quite possible they're not as familiar to us. And so I want to walk quickly through some of these just to help you be familiar with these important stories from the Old Testament. The first one that we see is Gideon. Gideon comes to us from Judges chapter 6 through 8. Gideon was nobody important. The Bible really makes a, a point of saying he was a nobody. God didn't pick him out because he was amazing. He picked him out because he was a nobody. And yet he's raised up by God to lead the Israelites against a foreign army, the army of the Midianites, an army of about 135,000 well-trained soldiers. And then there's Gideon, a nobody, a farmer. And eventually, he's able to raise up an army of somewhat trained, but probably poorly equipped Israelites. And he has an army of about 32,000. Now, you can do the math there. They are sorely outnumbered. 32,000 untrained soldiers against 135,000 trained soldiers. But don't worry, God's got a plan for this, and and he knows how to bring the victory. So he he whittles down Gideon's army from 32,000 to 10,000. This is a much better situation, evidently, for Gideon. And God says, no, no, I'm not done. This, it gets better. And he whittles it down again to 300. Now, don't worry. He didn't like kill those people. He just sent them home. And Gideon goes into battle, 300 soldiers against 135,000. And God, as he does often, comes to Gideon and he says, look, this battle's not going to be fought the way you think. And he tells him how to fight the battle. And it makes no real strategic sense. Although at this point, with only 300 people, there's not much sense left. But God tells him to fight in such a way that it is absolutely, abundantly obvious that God is the one who's going to bring the victory. Because there's no human way that this would work. And the battle plan involves some torches that are hidden and then revealed and some trumpets and some shouting. And what happens is these 135,000 soldiers turn against themselves, fight themselves, basically defeat themselves, and then run away. And Gideon chases them and has a great victory. We're also told about Barak. He was a great military leader during the period of the Judges. You can find his story in chapter 4 of Judges. We go into Samson, a little more uh, well-known, usually not well-known for very good things and for good reasons, Samson made a lot of very bad choices. But at the same time, he did trust God. And in the end, God's glory was seen through him defeating the Philistines. We meet Jephthah, a great judge and a leader from the judges, another great military leader, also made at least one very poor choice. We're, talked, or we're told about David, the great king of Israel, the slayer of the giant Goliath, the leader of Israelites' armies. A man after God's own heart, considered the greatest king in all of Israel. He also made some bad choices. We're told about Samuel, the last of the judges, who was also a prophet. He he led Israel into the transition to the kings. He anointed Saul as king, and then he anointed David as king. These were great heroes of the faith. And the recipients of this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, would have been familiar with their stories. And so when he says, think about their faith, they would have thought, yeah, yeah, I remember those guys. 
What powerful stories. Think about how God delivered them. If you go back to verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword. Weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Some of these are details from the stories that we've already mentioned. Others are from some other stories as well that are being brought in. But the idea is very plain. Look at how God delivered these people. In the midst of battle, in the midst of overwhelming odds, in the midst of of unsurmountable situations and great loss, look at how God brought triumph in these situations. Now, this doesn't mean these people were perfect. In fact, it's one of the things I love about Scripture. That when we're presented with somebody that is even held up as a great example of faith and a hero of the faith, the Bible's also very clear to tell us these people made bad decisions too. They're not perfect. In fact, in many ways, as I read these stories, I think I can identify with that because I'm not perfect either. Maybe you are and, and you don't resonate with these stories, but I do. I need to know that God uses imperfect people, otherwise I can't stand up here. Because God uses all throughout the Bible very, sometimes really, really imperfect people to do amazing things. And he leads them into situations where they are completely overwhelmed and outnumbered and God brings victory. Now, it's important to understand that these victories were God-given victories. Where it says they conquered kingdoms or shut the mouths of lions or quenched the fury of the flames. It's very obvious, take the story of Daniel shutting the mouth of lions. Daniel goes into a lion's den. Well, goes. That's a little too lightly. He was forced in. He's forced into the lion's den against his will. He faces these hungry lions, and yet they don't eat him. Now, did Daniel go around and just be like, nope, shut your mouth, and go around, nope, I'm stronger than you, shut your mouth. If you read Hebrews, it could look that way, but that's not how it happened. God caused the lions to not eat Daniel. The power in that situation was not Daniel's, He was trusting in the power beyond what he had. The power in that situation was God's. And again, we raised this issue last week as we looked at some of these stories. When it says, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, it's not saying, be like Moses, be like Noah. It's saying, trust in the God that they trusted in. That's the example. The example is the God that was faithful in whom they trusted in. Faith always, always, always points away from itself. Faith points to God. Faith doesn't say, look at me and how awesome I am. It says, well, I couldn't have done this, but look at God who can. And you can trust in Him too. So I have a question for you. Do you have faith in God's sovereignty to bring triumph? I think each one of us would want to answer that. Yeah. I want victory. I want triumph. I want to know that my problems can be solved. I want to know that God can bring deliverance in very difficult situations. I hope that's your answer. But at the same time, I think as Christians, sometimes it's easy to become fretful and anxious. And we look at situations, we say, I don't know. Sometimes it's our own sin and our own messiness. And we say, no, no, God's God's not powerful enough for this. Look at these stories and the power that God exhibited and the victory that he brought God can bring victory in your life. 
We look at our world and we say, oh, it's falling apart. Things are out of control. God is sovereign over these things. And so here these examples are being held up to look at, to say, we have a God who brings triumph. Do we believe in a God big enough to triumph over these things? Or are we just going to say, well, I don't know. It'll work out somehow. I don't know how. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know if He has a plan or not. No, we need to stop and say, I believe in a God who is greater than everything else. I believe He sent His Son. I believe that the Lord is powerful enough to deliver me in this situation. But this raises an important issue. What if He doesn't? Do we, in trusting in Christ have the assurance that every difficult situation that we find ourselves in will be solved by God? Do we know that if we just call out to Him, He'll make it all better and the problem will just go away and sunshine and rainbows will come out? And the answer is no, we don't. Because sometimes faith doesn't lead to triumph. Sometimes the same faith, the same trust, and the same sovereignty of God leads to tragedy. And that's where we turn next. Look at verse 35. We'll pick it up in the middle of the verse. There were others. And I just want to stop there. This is a key phrase in this passage. He's talked about these great victories, these great triumphs, these people of faith that experience God's deliverance. And then he says, there were others outside of this group that experienced victory and triumph. There were others. This is such a tragic statement. Let's look at these others. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. There were others. Think about what it's saying some of these people went through. They were tortured and refused to be released. Jewish history records that between the Old and the New Testament, there was a priest by the name of Eleazar. Eleazar was in his 90s, faithful servant of the Lord, and he was captured. And he was strapped to a rack and stretched out on it. And he was beaten continuously. And he was told if he would forsake his God, all he had to do was eat a little bit of pork. And as a Jewish person, that was forbidden. It's all he had to do. And if he would do that, they'd let him go. Guess what he did? He refused. And they beat him to death. There were others says, so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Now, some take this to mean, if you're faithful to God and you endure persecution, your afterlife will be better. You'll be specially blessed. And there are some religions in the world that teach this as a part of their religion as well. That is not what this is about. 
There are two ways of being resurrected in this sense, of getting your life back. One is give in. If, if that person would just say, yes, I don't believe in God. For Eleazar, I'll just eat the pork. For him, that's what it was. Just give in. No big deal. Well, then he gets his life back. Go home. Be with your family. Enjoy the time. Enjoy the rest of your life. Whatever it may be, you get your life back. You're saved in that way. But what this is saying is they looked at that situation and the option to give in and they said, no, as hard as this is, And as great as that would be to go home and be with my family and live out the rest of my life, that is not what I'm trusting in. I believe that what God has for me is far better. So I will say no to that option. I will suffer. I will endure the beating. I will even die. In verses 36 through 37, it continues to talk about these tragedies. They face public humiliation Jeers and flogging. This is beyond just somebody walking by and saying, haha, you're a Christian, that's foolish. This is intentional, often structured, calling somebody out for their faith, holding them up in the public sphere, and the whole town understanding why they're there, and persecuting them, and heaping insults on them, even flogging them. But it could go further. They faced imprisonment being bound in chains. We have in this country some laws that if you're put in prison, there's a certain amount of time before you have to be brought before a judge to have your your particular case tried. They didn't have those. If you were put in prison, you could be put in prison at the whim of any public official. And you were in prison until some other public official woke up one day and said, hey, let's talk to so-and-so and hear their case. And you could be in prison for a very long time. And it wasn't a government-subsidized prison. You had to pay for your own food. You had to find a way to get your own clothing. Everything that you needed to survive in prison had to be provided to you by somebody else. And we talked about that earlier as the early church surrounded those who had been persecuted and arrested for their faith and they gave of their own belongings and they even went through persecution to help out one another. It says not only did they face humiliation and imprisonment, but death. They were stoned to death, sawed in two, killed by the sword. I don't know that it would be proper to talk about any good way to die but there are certainly some really awful ways. To be stoned would be to be cast into a pit, sometimes thrown off of a short cliff, and the crowd would gather around you, and as they're screaming and yelling at you, they'd pick up stones, not pebbles, large stones, and just hurl them down on you. My guess is it was seldom that the first one was the one that ended the life. Instead, they would be beaten and bloodied, until they were dead. One of the heroes of the faith was Isaiah, a prophet of the Old Testament. And one of the stories that the Jewish kids would have grown up hearing, although it's not in the Old Testament, it was something that was passed around in the first century, was that Isaiah was indeed sawed in two. That's how he was killed. I can't imagine that's a good way to die either. Others were killed by the sword. By the time of the writing of Hebrews, Christians were being arrested. Christians were being put to death as well. 
And then these are summed up. They lived a life of rejection by this world. Some of them couldn't even live in their homes or in their hometowns. They were so cast out that they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. They, in their tragedy, were cast out from society. And then there's a great message of perspective here. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. You see, there was a common way of thinking back then, and I think it's still alive today, that if things are going well for you, then you must be doing well. If you're basically successful, then you must be a good person. And we're applauded for that. If things are going poor for you and you're in poverty or you're struggling, well, you must be doing something wrong. That was pretty common back then. Do you think it's still common today? I think so. So take somebody in a tragedy. Somebody who's trusting in Christ as their Savior and yet they're going through an awful, horrendous experience and society's turning against them. Well, the world looks at them and says, see, you're wrong, we're right, because look at what's happening with you. You're not worthy. Obviously, you're not worthy, otherwise your life would be going better. And I love how Hebrews turns that on its head. It says, no, no, it's actually the other way around. The reason that they're not fitting in with your world, the reason that they're experiencing this persecution is not that they're not worthy, it's that the world is not worthy of them. You see, there's two ways. You could go the world's way and and live what the world wants you to do and think the way the world wants you to think and you could be deemed worthy and live that way and everything would be great. Or, in their case, you could wander in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. You could live out of sync with this world in such a way that causes the world to spit you out or bring great tragedy into your life and through that say, I am trusting in something that is far greater and God says, "That's, that's what's worthy. Not the ways of this world. So I have another question for you. I asked earlier, do you have faith in a God who triumphs? I think that one's pretty easy. Sign me up. Here's another question. Do we have faith in God's sovereignty in tragedy? Do we have faith in a God who brings tragedy? See, sometimes following Christ brings victory. We see the first group, the first list. Look at where faith got them. They were delivered. They were rescued. Miraculously so. That's great. Now we have a second group. Look at where faith got them. They weren't delivered. They didn't get the miracle. They suffered horribly so sometimes. And many of them lost their lives. What's the difference? Did the first group have more or better faith than the second? Is the first, first group somehow a better example of faithfulness than the second? The answer is no. According to the chapter, there's nothing about the faith of the first group that led to victory and the faith of the second group that led to tragedy. So what led one to victory and one to tragedy? What made the difference? And the answer is difficult. It's God. Who chose to give one group victory? God did. Who chose to lead one through tragedy? God did. 
You know, one of my favorite verses is Daniel 3.18. It's one of these great stories of faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are facing a very difficult decision. The king, a very powerful ruler of the day, is coming to them and saying, you must worship me and bow down to my idol. You must worship this idol or your life is gone. And I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace. They trust in God's ability to save them. There's this wonderful statement that they know God is able to save them. In, in Daniel 3.17, it says, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. There's the triumph. We believe God can and will bring victory. Now, it's interesting to think about what they meant by that. God is able somehow miraculously to deliver us from this furnace. But we know beyond any shadow of a doubt, King, the Lord is going to rescue us from you. That's either going to be by saving us from the furnace or by ending our life. But either way, we're done with you. And then the next phrase. And this is the one I love. Verse 18. But even if he does not, even if he does not rescue us from the furnace, even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They had an even if he doesn't faith. Do we? We want to believe and we should believe in a God who can and does deliver. That's right. Biblical. God brings victory. God brings triumph. Often, whatever situation you're in, God is powerful enough to deliver you through it and bring victory for His glory. We need to believe that. But we also need to have an even if He doesn't faith. Even if God doesn't bring victory, He is still good. Even if He doesn't deliver us, His plan is still solid and is being carried out for our good and His glory. Do we trust in a God who gets to decide who gets victory and who gets tragedy? And it's at this point, a lot of well-meaning Christians will walk away. They'll say, wait a minute, I signed on to this to make my life better. Now you're telling me that God can and does bring intentionally to his people tragedy? Yes. Well, no, I'm not. The Bible is. And people will walk away and say, no, no, no. I don't want that. I didn't sign up for that. Okay. I want to be fair. Let's give you some alternatives. You don't want to trust in God having that right. So let's give some alternatives. What are the better options? Here's door number two. Maybe that should be our decision. Who gets what's right or who gets what's wrong? Maybe that should be based on us and our efforts and whether or not we're good or not. Think back over your life. If the sum total of your life was simply about how well you did or didn't do in any given moment, where would you be? I would guess if we went around and surveyed those that are younger in the crowd, they say, I'd be great. Bring it on. I, I want to rule my own fate. I'm guessing if we went around and spoke to some that had a little more gray on their head 
or none at all, that, that they would say, no, I am who I am not because of my decisions, but because of God's sovereignty over my decisions. The truth is, we're really bad at deciding right and wrong. We're really good at making mistakes. We're really good in the moment of thinking we understand and and hopefully coming up with what seems to be a good outcome, but at the end of the day, we're very limited. I think in many ways, as we look at the world and so many things that are messed up, the good and the bad relying simply on our choices is not a good solution. So let's talk about door number three. If door number one that we don't like is trusting in God and His sovereignty, door number two that I think is a bad option is trusting in us, which, by the way, puts all of the burden for everything that happens in your life on you. So if if things are good, well, great, you did good. But when things get bad, it's all your fault. And that's a harsh burden to bear. Let's talk about door number three. Maybe everything's just random. Maybe it's just fate or chance. It always amazes me when people that can't have faith in God say they believe in chance. As if there's some mysterious force that drives everything to some sort of conclusion. Okay, somehow my faith is weirder than yours. Do we want to just say everything's random? Maybe there isn't a plan? And what we do just doesn't matter? And all the effort when we get up and we raise our kids... And we go to work, and we try to do good things in this world. Maybe none of it matters. Or maybe we just need to make it up for ourselves, and and every day or every generation comes up with a new way, a new ideology of making sense of this world. And the history of the world is filled with ideology after ideology that didn't work, and it all broke down at some point. Because when it all depends upon us, or there's just this randomness, at some point our answers don't make sense. I don't want to wake up in a world where nothing matters. I find it much better to trust in a God as difficult as he is, who has a plan. And he does things for a reason, whether I agree or disagree, like or don't like, to know that the all-powerful, sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who sent his Son to die for me on the cross, to know that he has a plan. And in good times and bad times, he is working out that plan. Sign me up. And this all brings a lot of perspective. Look at verses 39 through 40. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. The chapter started by talking about these people that are commended for their faith. It says in verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. And then he goes through the commendations of each of these people. But the point is clear for each one. That who is being commended is ultimately the God whom they trusted in. Not them and their amazing amount of faith. And the story after story that is held up before us is look at the God who did great things through these people. And then it says, verse 39, Yet none of them received what had been promised. Now that's an interesting statement. Because David... He kind of did defeat Goliath, didn't he? 
people did receive back their dead. People did have triumph in battle. They actually did receive some pretty good things. Moses was promised that God would deliver the Israelites through his hands. Guess what? God did. I'd say they received some things. So what's the author talking about? Each of these individual promises to each of these characters throughout Scripture were all part of something bigger. And as you read through the Old Testament stories, you get a sense that they understood this in their better moments. That it wasn't just about a burning bush or the miraculous exodus from Egypt or the deliverance through the desert and into the promised land. It wasn't just about shutting the mouths of lions or saving them through the fiery furnace. It was that God has had a plan from Genesis to Revelation for all of humanity. And this passage ties in something so important. It says none of them received what had been promised. They didn't know, even in their best moments of trusting in God, they didn't know what you and I know today. They didn't know the ultimate reality of how God was going to fulfill his plan. They knew in some way, shape, or form God was bringing salvation, but they didn't know exactly how. Guess what we know? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born in a manger. He died on a cross taking your place and my place. And he rose from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe. The saints of old, these people that were commended for their faith, they longed to look at these things. They yearned for the day when God would bring final deliverance. And you and I live on the finish side of the cross. That's perspective. And if they were able, with what they knew, to go through the things they went through and endure in faith, How much more so us today who can point to the cross and the resurrection and the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because God had planned, verse 40, something better for us. You and I have a privileged place in history. We've seen the story, the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's only together with us, those who would believe after the cross, that those who believed before the the cross are made perfect. The story of salvation throughout all of history comes together. And we get to see it now. And the author is holding these people up. And in chapter 12, we'll look at next week. Therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, keep going. Don't give up. Don't get distracted by the world around us. Don't give in to the pressures. Look at how they endured. How much more so should we? We need to learn from the heroes of faith. But we also need to understand that we have a greater perspective than they did. We need to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ in our hardest moments, in the most difficult tragedies that we go through, We have the Son of God who died to save us and rose from the grave. That's our perspective. If they were able to endure, and God was gracious to them in those smaller promises, how much more so us now that Christ has come? I want to close by reading Romans 8.31-39. Because it's such a powerful passage of perspective based upon this promise of God through Jesus Christ. 
Romans 8, starting in verse 31. And if you're going through a tough time right now, and you're thinking God doesn't love you, or He doesn't care, He's not really at work, listen. This is the very word of the Lord. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these examples of faith throughout Scripture are so powerful. They are powerful because they point to your ability to bring victory and triumph. And Father, there's some people right now that I'm guessing in their lives right now, they need to know that you are powerful to bring victory. And they need to trust that you can do that. But God, we also all need to trust and have the kind of faith that says, even if you don't, you are good. And you are greater than any other option. And you love us and you know why you're doing what you do. You have a plan in and through all of it for your glory and our good. And we have the confirmation of that plan through Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross in our place. We have the culmination of that plan and our sins being put upon Him and forgiven from us once for all. We have the great promise of that plan and the resurrection as you raise Jesus from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe in Him. And we too look forward to a day when the trials and tragedies of this world will go away and ultimate victory will be yours when Jesus Christ returns. But in the meantime, may we trust you May we be faithful and learn from those who have gone before us. And may we be a testimony to those who are coming after us. May we be a hero of the faith to our own kids and to the kids around us, to the people in our churches and the people in our community to point them away from ourselves to Jesus Christ in whom there is salvation. We praise you for your sovereignty to bring triumph and even to guide us and endure us through tragedy for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.